just going to do today's scripture readings for you. If you want to follow along, you're going to need a handful of fingers in your Bible. Um, uh, we're going to be reading all of the gospel accounts of um, Jesus in the temple. Um, so if you want to find Luke 19, verse 45 onwards, and then there's Matthew 21, verse 12, then Mark 11, verse 15, and then John 2, verse 13. I'll just say those again. Luke 19, verse 45, Matthew 21, verse 12, Mark 11, verse 15, and then John 2, is that John 2? Yeah, uh, verse 13. Surprised it's so early in John. Anyway, we'll start with Luke 19, verse 45. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words. And Matthew 21, verse 12. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. And then Mark 11, verse 15. In reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And finally, John 2. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Let's pray quickly. Lord, may the words that I speak reveal more and more of who you are and how you love us. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Yeah, I'm not sure if having like all four gospel accounts read is just super obnoxious, but I promise you this will make sense later. <laughs> uh, we are on week two of our Just Before I Leave series, where we're having a real look at the week leading up to Jesus's death and resurrection. And last week we heard from Ronald Charles, who gave an amazing message on the triumphal entry when Jesus entered into Jerusalem. 
And Ronald took some time telling us what it looked like for Jesus to be enthroned as king and how he's a different king to the kind of king that we expect and how his rule is going to look different to the kind of things we see from kings today. So it seems that this is a, an obvious follow-up, although it's a bit of a strange one, I suppose. Um, this follows the triumphal entry in three of the four Gospels. John puts it at the start. There are lots of theories as to why John does this. If you want to talk to me about that, I'd love to talk to you, but it's weird nerdy theology things which not everyone is interested in, so I want to give you a break on that. So yeah, we're going to be talking about Jesus uh, clearing the temple, or cleansing the temple, or Jesus in the temple, or Jesus's violence in the temple. And as I like to, I went to Wikipedia, because that's a good place to start looking for images of this. And I think so many of us have a concrete image of what Jesus in the temple looks like. And I think it might look similar to some of the stuff I found, which isn't Quite as similar to what we read in scripture. Can we can we just like bring up the first painting I found? Let's see if we can uh, get this bad boy working. Here we go. There we go. Uh, this is a painting I like to call "Jesus Attacks Young Woman," which uh, <laughs> uh, you know, doesn't doesn't exactly jive with what we heard. Let's let's have a look at the next one. This is the next one on the Wikipedia page. This is what I like to call "Jesus Attacks Middle Age Woman." Um, let's look at the next painting. Uh, here we go. If you can see, this is a guy that's just been knocked clear off his feet uh, at the base here. So this is Jesus attacks a whole bunch of people and also Oscar Wilde for some reason. Um, and, and, and here's my final favorite one, Jesus attacks old woman. Um, now, I, I, I realize I'm saying this kind of tongue in cheek. Okay, we, can, we don't have to look at that anymore. Thank you, Yana. <laughs> I'm saying this tongue-in-cheek and I'm laughing, but I'm laughing at just how ridiculous this feels, how ridiculous this sounds when we say it out loud. It feels totally absurd, and yet there are so many people that will cite this passage in a way that I don't think is reflective of who Jesus is and how Jesus acts. Many evangelical pastors talk about well, sometimes you've got to turn over some tables, but what they really mean is they just want to be kind of mean to someone. <laughs> when I talk about nonviolence and how I see nonviolence reflected in Jesus, shown in Jesus all the time, so often the response is, yeah, but what about Jesus's violence in the temple? And this comes up over and over and over. And I've been talking to people about uh, Martin Luther King and his nonviolent resistance, one of the great examples of nonviolent resistance and leadership and the impact and legacy that has led. And I was like, yeah, it's this Christian, Christ-loving, Christ-knowing influence that inspired that. And people's response is, yeah, but what about Jesus' violence in the temple? As if that's like, you know, a checkmate or something. And so then we go further back. So the first three centuries of Christianity where it is defined by its non-violence, by its lack of participation in any sort of violence. Christians wouldn't even go to the arena because it was violent. And arenas is where everyone went. That was like the Netflix of the day. But they were defined by their non-participation in anything violent. 
And people's response when I say this, yeah, but what about Jesus' violence in the temple? And some of them go, okay, well, let's let's talk about Jesus himself. Let's look at the actual like teachings of Jesus, the words of Jesus, and his response to people that are violent. So I think one of my favorite texts is, a town has not welcomed Jesus, and James and John say, shall we call down fire from heaven on them? <laughs> and, <laughs> and the Bible just says, Jesus turned and rebuked them. And I'm like, I think, I think Luke is being very kind <laughs> about what he's censoring there. Jesus turned and rebuked them. Uh, just a few days after the triumphal entry, when they come to arrest Jesus, and Peter chops off the guard's ear, what is it that Jesus says? Those who live by the sword are going to die by the sword. Those who draw the sword will die by the sword. And then he says, don't you know I have 12 legions of angels at my disposal if I want them? So what he's saying there, like, if violence is how we're going to do this thing, I would have done it, and I'd do it a lot better than you, Peter. But I won't, because I'm not that kind of a king that gets things done by violence. And people's response is, yeah, but what about violence in the temple? <laughs> I'm like, okay, well, let's, let's go back to some of those fundamental pieces we know about Jesus and who Jesus is. Let's think about this. You know, you've been told an eye for an eye, but I say to you, if someone strikes you, turn the other cheek. Or, or even looking at the crucified Jesus who's naked and bloodied and abused and the people mock him. And that same Jesus that still has those 12 legions of angels at his command instead says, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And people's response is, what about Jesus' violence in the temple? <laughs> so, <laughs> what I want to do today is look at this supposed violence in the temple. And if this is uh, striking a little bit of a nerve with you, that is okay. I think sometimes this is taught quite irresponsibly, and obviously it's my desire to be as in sync with Jesus as I can. But um, we need to recognize that our thoughts and our actions are going to be really displeasing to Jesus if we have a bad image, if we have a corrupted idea of who Jesus is. And throughout history, there have been people that use this verse like specifically to justify some pretty horrendous violence. John Calvin, who's a very important voice in Protestantism in the 16th century, he used the John 2 verse at the execution of a theological rival that he disagreed with. <laughs> like That's how much this verse has been used to justify violence. And let's be clear, there are people that still want to invoke the name and the words and the teachings of Jesus as an excuse for violence today. Last week, Putin shared those words, greater love has no man than one willing to lay down his life for his friends, as an excuse to, you know, bomb a hospital. And I would argue that there is a slightly different context from Vladimir Putin, who is this, I'd say, mad dictator who's also worth $200 billion and is instructing people to kill, is very different to Jesus, who says this to his friends 
shortly before he lays down his own life. But the heart of so many of these words that have been twisted and abused is this image, I think, of this whip-wielding Jesus, that when nothing else works, he's going to resort to violence like the rest of us. But I don't think that Jesus that has apparently inspired so many artists over the years, I don't think that's what we find in Scripture. And it's generally a good idea to just trust what Scripture says about who Jesus is. I know I had Kevin read out all four gospel accounts. I, I promise you it matters. I, I want to begin with the whip. Again, this, this image, this idea that has captivated people for so long, apparently, that has kind of got Jesus as some first century Indiana Jones running around and getting things done with the whip. What's interesting if you notice, the whip is only mentioned in one of the four Gospels that we read, which might mean it's not quite as central to the story as we appear to have made it out to be. But I'll read that, I'll read that part again. This is from John 2. It says, So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both the sheep and the cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers, and overturned their tables. So, again, who is it that he's driving out with a whip there? It's the sheep and the cattle, right? <laughs> and then he scattered the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. But this idea of Jesus using a whip on people doesn't exist. Oh, and if you want to know how you drive out cattle, I'm going to show you. For those of you who listen to the podcast, I'm now brandishing a whip. That's a pretty effective way <laughs> of driving out cattle, right? If you're trying to get animals to move, probably cracking a whip really loud. My ear's ringing now. But <laughs> if my ear is ringing, that's probably going to be an effective way of startling sheep and startling cattle and getting them out the way. So why is it we talk about violence in the temple when the closest thing we get to that is Jesus using a whip to drive animals away? And it's not even clear that he uses it to actually attack the animals. And I argue it would be kind of strange if he did when it's really effective to drive out animals by just cracking a whip. So it seems quite a stretch, really. <laughs> Taking a text that's primarily about a bunch of things, but the only place the whip is used is to drive out animals, to then making that about why you can execute your theological rivals. <laughs> it seems we're so fixated on that idea and that image, and yet Scripture just doesn't tell us that. Jesus doesn't use a whip on people. It's not there. So what else, what else is going on? If it's not that, what else is going on? And this is where I think it actually becomes more interesting. So one of the really vivid pieces of imagery we see in this verse is Jesus turning over the tables of the money changers. This appears in three of the four Gospels, for what it's worth. It seems like it's something most of the authors don't want us to miss. So you're probably asking, what does a money changer do? Does Jesus go wild at those currency converter guys at the airport? Uh, they charge a hefty commission, so I'd like to think he would. But 
I, I learned really what a money changer did this week, and it blew my mind, and I hope it blows yours too. So when you went to the temple, you had to change your own currency, whatever money that you had, into the official currency of the temple in order to pay the temple tax in order to worship at the temple. You couldn't do that with just your own regular money. You had to buy special temple money. Now, I naively thought that they had their own mints, their own press or whatever, and the money would have the temple on one side and like a Bible verse on the other. Kind of, and they were kind of like Disney fun bucks. You know, you go to Disneyland and you buy Disney dollars and you can only spend them in the park. And you're like, this is a terrible idea. I can use real money for this. But it's a way of them charging you twice. But this wasn't actually the case. There was no like actual temple print or temple mint or anything. The official currency of the temple is what is called the Tyrian shekel. I promise you this is where it gets really fascinating. Um, the Tyrian shekel is literally just a shekel that is forged in Tyre. Um, the reason for this is because the Tyrian shekel, the shekel forged in Tyre, was made of a purer silver. And so people in charge of the temple wanted a nice shiny silver piece. They knew it was worth lots of money. So it's not special coins that are made for the temple. It's just silver coins from a specific region of the Roman Empire. These are what you needed to worship in the temple. This Tyrian shekel, the official currency of the temple, the coin you had to buy in order to worship the temple, this is what it looks like. Ta-da! Awesome, thank you. Now, what you will notice that instead of having the temple and Bible verse that I was suggesting, is on one side we have the Roman imperial eagle, Remember, Caesar is Lord, not Jesus, that kind of Roman empire, the same empire that's oppressing you and makes you pay taxes to them and you really don't like. The other one, this is where it gets really amazing though, this face is the face of Baal, who, for those of you who don't know, is a pagan god who was very long despised in a whole bunch of religions, especially in Judaism. I... I I know this sounds far-fetched, I like triple-checked this week because I couldn't believe it, but this was the money you had to use to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. A coin with the Roman imperial eagle on one side and the head of a pagan deity on the other. Uh, we can bring the picture back down. Thanks, Yana. So... We wonder why Jesus overturned these temples, why he scattered those coins. Not only are these money changers charging a commission, they are exploiting people that want to worship. They are putting a barrier up to people that want to worship God in the temple. <laughs> but he's angry because the face of Baal has become the currency for the temple. And if you read the Old Testament, you'll see Baal's name come up a whole bunch, and it's never good. <laughs> to quote my friend and professor Jordan Ryan, it's like Baal never left the temple. What's really interesting, I think, is reading rabbis around this time in the first century, and they really lament over the exploitation and the idolatry that's become so prevalent in the temple. So this isn't a problem with like, the Jews or even a lot of the Jewish leadership with a lot of the rabbis. It's just a very few people exploiting the many by bending the knee to Rome and to Baal and to money, but not to God. 
So why did Jesus throw that money on the ground? <laughs> Pick a reason. But it's quite a departure from evangelical pastors using it as an excuse to kind of behave in a way that's unloving and ultimately unchristlike. I think. It looks very different. So what else is going on here? One of the other things that Jesus focuses on is those that were selling doves. Three of the four gospel authors mention this too. Uh, anyone want to guess a reason why Jesus focused in on those selling doves? There's like several people with theology degrees in this room. Yell one out for me. Yeah, yeah, there we go. There we go. There we go. My boy Cole came through. Thank you, Cole. Everyone else is too humble or has forgotten or something. Yeah. Doves were specifically sacrifices that were brought by the poor. If you were richer, you'd bring something more impressive, like a calf. When you're poor, you bring a dove. When you can't really bring anything else, you bring a dove. You could bring grain. That's like another thing. But ultimately, doves were what poor people would bring as sacrifices. They'd bring as offerings, something they'd bring to show that they love God. This is a gift that they were offering God as thanks for being loved by God. But Jesus, once again, hones in on those exploiting the poor. So you had to present a dove without blemish. This is one of the rules. You have to present a dove without blemish. However, <laughs> you were allowed to bring your own dove. So if you're fortunate enough to just catch a dove or have doves, I don't know how people have doves, but assuming you had a dove, you could bring your own dove to the temple. And presuming it was without blemish, that would be considered an acceptable sacrifice. However, there were temple officials who would check your dove for blemishes. And unsurprisingly, quite a lot of those checking for blemishes were very corrupt, at which point they would confiscate your dove and point you to one of their friends who was selling a dove at a very jacked up price. And just in case you're wondering, absolutely, they took those confiscated doves and then sold them as well. <laughs> so double dipping on exploiting the poor. There's healthy kickbacks for both sides of this corrupt system that ultimately kept the poor from worshipping. People who have come to make an offering to God but are instead told that it's not good enough, and then they have to spend money that they don't have in order to enter. Like That does seem like something that would probably get Jesus' ire up, doesn't it? <laughs> All right, we're closing, closing in now. I think one more thing that Jesus is trying to do here is to warn people. He quotes both Isaiah and Jeremiah, and he says that my house will be a house of prayer for all nations, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. So Jeremiah and Isaiah are both very lengthy tomes, <laughs> but the root of those books is the prophets begging people, especially those in power, to repent. If you don't change your ways, especially your ways of worshipping Baal, incidentally, especially of exploiting the poor, incidentally, if you don't stop making the temple a place for the worship of money and start making it a place for the worship of God, then the temple's going to be destroyed. Like, that's what's going to happen. And for those of you versed in the Old Testament, that's exactly what happens in the 6th century. 
the Babylonians come in, they raise the temple, they sack the temple, um, and the temple's destroyed, and there's no more temple for centuries. And Jesus' disruption is in this rebuilt temple. We hear that it's been up for a few decades now. And he's giving that same warning to those same corrupt power structures. And you know what? Guess what happens about 30, 40 years after Jesus gives this message? The temple's destroyed. <laughs> I think that Jesus is pleading with the leaders to realize the mistakes they're making and the inevitable tragedy that follows if they don't change their hearts. So here's where the whole thing lands for me. And, and while some of us may still have that kind of whip-wielding Jesus stuck in our heads, um, I think that whip-wielding Jesus is one that we want to run away from. <laughs> I'm scared of whip-wielding Jesus. I'm scared of what he might do. And we'd think, if this was the case, if Jesus was just running around with a whip a few days earlier, the people would run from him. And instead, what we hear is that people are drawn to him. It seems that despite these actions that you know we'd assume would frighten people off Jesus, the people are all the more drawn to him. Luke 19.48 says that all the people hung on his words. Mark 15.18 says the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. That Jesus is this new temple, a temple in which we can all abide. It's a temple that doesn't demand perfection, a temple that doesn't demand a lack of blemishes, a temple that doesn't demand a minimum spend to enter. That Jesus may drive out the money changers, but it's those that have been oppressed by those corrupt systems that are drawn closer to him by <laughs> him <laughs> driving out the money changers. When Jesus condemns the powerful, he makes himself a safer space for the powerless. And we need to do the same as a church and as individuals. When Jesus thwarts the exploiters, he makes himself a safer place for the exploited. And we need to do the same as a church and individuals. And when Jesus exposes the abusers, he makes himself a safer space for the abused. And we need to do the same as church and as individuals. And when we see people being excluded or exploited or abused, let us have that same zeal as individuals and as a church to make a safe space for them. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that we can follow your example in thought and word and deed. And where our understanding of you may have become blurry, we pray that you give us 2020 vision, that we see you clearly, that we know you perfectly. We pray that we reflect you so well that when people 
encounter us, they see you too. We ask these things in your name. Amen.